0: With no greater events than these in the Longbourn family, and otherwise diversified by little beyond the walks to Meryton, sometimes dirty and sometimes cold, did January and February pass away?
1: I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen, and this is the Reading Jane Austen podcast.
0: This week, we're looking at chapters 27 to 34 of Pride and Prejudice. Have you got a sentence that summarises them? I've got one, but I don't know if I've got the breath to read it
1: all in one go. But here we are. Elizabeth, Still convinced that Wickham must always be her model of the amiable and pleasing and that Jane is still dejected at the loss of Bingley, visits Charlotte in Huntsford where she is patronised by Lady Catherine but attracts the attention of Lady Catherine's two nephews. The first of whom reveals that the second, Darcy, had played a part in separating Jane from Bingley And Darcy then surprises Elizabeth by making her an offer of marriage, which Elizabeth rejects on the grounds of her immovable dislike. Okay, I thought that was pretty good. And that has got one and, and it's got three things I was able to put in quotation
0: marks. Okay, so it gives you plus two. Yes. Okay, that's actually better than mine. Uh, Well, I'm learning. (laughs) (laughs) So mine is... Elizabeth spends six weeks with the Collinses in the company of Mariah Lucas, during which time they are frequently invited to Rosings by Lady Catherine de Bourgh so that she can have people to talk at with dignified impertinence. And when Darcy, along with his cousin Colonel Fitzwilliam, are visiting, Colonel Fitzwilliam reveals that it was Darcy who separated Bingley from Jane. And just when Elizabeth is feeling most outraged, Darcy arrives to tell her that despite the inferiority of her connections, he can resist his feelings no longer, and he proposes marriage. So that had three Jane Austenisms in it, but it also had three ends. so that puts me at zero for this week, yes. I talked last time about how we're getting this very precise timetable, and in fact, up until now, it's sort of been bang, 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 event, 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 covering a couple of months quite closely. And suddenly we have this big pause. In January, I think, even though it says nothing happened, that is probably when Charlotte's wedding happened. But January, February, they skip over all of that until March when Elizabeth goes away.
1: And just before she leaves, there's this piece I like about her feelings for Wickham. There was a solicitude and an interest which she felt must ever attach her to him with the most sincere regard, and she parted from him, convinced that, whether married or single... He must always be her model of the amiable and the pleasing. You get the impression there is Elizabeth. She's sort of looking for someone to be in love
0: with. Mm. And it's a bit the same when Colonel Fitzwilliam turns up. Well, it's actually exactly the same. But I was thinking maybe it just suggests that most of the men in Meryton, maybe just because she's known them all her life or maybe they're just not very engaging to talk to, Yeah, and she uh, doesn't
1: particularly like the officers apart from Wickham. Yes.
0: So you've got this set up that she thinks Wickham is going to be one of the people she has the biggest connection with for the whole rest of her life. Yes. And then she meets Colonel Fitzwilliam and she enjoys being with him. And Hmm. it says that she was reminded by her own satisfaction in being with him, as well as by his evident admiration of her, of her former favourite George Wickham. And though in comparing them she saw there was less captivating softness in Colonel Fitzwilliam's manners, she believed he might have the best informed mind. So she's actually, now that she's moving into the world a little bit more, or at least meeting one more man, she's maybe starting to pick up on some... Deficiencies in Wickham. Yes, or at least
1: she's getting more and more to build her ideal man on. One of the things I think is Elizabeth that her most witty is when she does that little argument with Mrs. Gardiner
0: about what should Wickham do. Yes, she says, Pray, my dear aunt, what is the difference in matrimonial affairs between the mercenary and the prudent motive? Where does discretion end and avarice begin? Last Christmas you were afraid of his marrying me because it would be imprudent and now because he's trying to get a girl with only £10,000 you want to find out that he is mercenary. <laughs> it's really
1: a, a very nice little witty piece of logic chopping and so on which just shows Elizabeth that her sparkling best. Yes. really. Now various other points that I'd like to make yep. before we get to Hunsford and that is this very, very distanced picture of Jane's suffering. I mean, when you think what Jane Austen could do in Sense and Sensibility with Marianne's suffering, mm. and you sort of, you know, you felt it so closely. Yeah. And here she sees Jane's feelings through her aunt, she sees them through her letters, but we get it described at such a distance Yes. that we have no no real empathy with Jane. Mm.
0: I hadn't actually thought of that, but... But you're right, we don't. It's all practically as soon as it happens. Jane goes off to London. Well, no, not practically as soon as it happens, but it's not very long before Jane goes off to London. And yes, Elizabeth only gets it through letters.
1: But also, again, the only empathy we have is with Elizabeth's feelings. And it's not like that with Marianne. No, even though you're seeing it almost entirely through Eleanor, somehow you know exactly what's happening. Mm. Well, what she's feeling. Mm. That's just an observation, it's not Mm. a criticism. No. It's just an observation on the very different concern of this novel compared
0: Mm. with the concern of, of sense and sensibility. You were saying last time when we were talking about Charlotte and about the marriage to Mr Collins that you felt that one of the things Charlotte could do is she would be able to manage him to an extent and make him behave in a slightly less foolish manner. So I was thinking of that when I was reading these chapters and... One of the things that really struck me is that when... They make their first visit to Rosings yes. and Elizabeth and Sir William Lucas and Mariah need to be introduced to Lady Catherine. Charlotte and Mr Collins had settled it that Charlotte would make the introduction and therefore it was done in a much more sensible manner. As you said last time it would certainly have been Charlotte's decision that that should be how it should be done. Yes what really makes me
1: wonder is how did she manage to persuade him? Now you can see her saying no no I think we should do it this way this is the proper way to do things but would he accept she knew because earlier Elizabeth Elizabeth tried to tell him not to introduce himself to Mr Darcy and he
0: took no notice. Yes, but he'd only known Elizabeth a week or two at that point. He's been married to Charlotte for three months now. Yes. Charlotte is a very clever woman.
1: And of course we've got that other bit of management that Charlotte does of making sure that
0: they don't sit in the dining yes. room. Yes, <laughs> she set up her, her sitting room that it's in the back of the house Yes, Even though the aspect is less pleasing because that way Mr Collins won't be popping in all the time. Well, no, he'll be popping in all the time, but he won't settle down there mm. because
1: he wants to be somewhere where he can keep his eye. The yeah. moment anything comes past, he pops
0: in. Yeah. Yes, and it actually says she, Elizabeth felt that Charlotte could probably spend most of the day without seeing Mr Collins at all. My other point then about the Collinses
1: is Mr Collins's gardening he can 't be kneeling down by a garden bed pulling out weeds what's he doing? Is he walking around with with some sort of cane swishing at the weeds? Is he occasionally getting out some sort of pruning instrument or is he just bossing the gardeners?
0: <laughs> well, surely they wouldn't have gardeners plural they 'd have only
1: one oh, no the most. I think that they'd definitely have a gardener and and a boy uh-huh. The gardener would want to have somebody to take the stuff away while he did all the
0: all the important things. Mm-hmm. Because it does say at one point that most of their social interaction is with Lady Catherine because the rest of the um, community is actually a little bit above their touch. Yes. So I wonder, does that mean they're actually living in a relatively humble way?
1: What I feel is all that means is that it's a very much more prosperous area than where Longbourn is. Yeah. Whereas there they had lots and lots of quite small gentry families. Yeah. Perhaps with Rosings, well, after all, Rosings is a big estate and the estates around it are probably a fair way from where the Collinses live and also they probably, if they're larger, they're grander. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of a completely different sort of community. Mm-hmm. I think I was saying earlier on that I get the impression that around Meryton, it's a lot of small people because as far as one can see, Elizabeth is so confident socially because she comes from quite a small landed family, whereas if she's up against bigger landed families, Mm -hmm. it might be harder. Mm -hmm. Well, what I was going to say is, now I have this other piece where I'm trying to trace all Jane Austen's views on marriage and quite how she sees it and particularly, you know, how she talks about the wickedness of marrying for a situation and so on. But the thing I got there is that it keeps on saying Elizabeth loved
0: absurdities.
1: Her father certainly enjoys Mr Collins, Mm. but she doesn't. What is made very clear there is she writes of her disgust at Mr Collins Mm. and how awful it's going to be. And I just get this feeling was for her first meeting with him when they were sort of thinking of them having some sort of sexual relationship. She went into one of those, ooh, I couldn't touch him, ooh, I couldn't bear to be kissed by that man. And that's where her disgust of Mr Collins comes. Mm-hmm. But then that probably plays a part in what she feels about marriages like Charlotte's or somehow that sexuality has to somehow be connected to attraction and, and seeing the person as, as physically pleasant.
0: Mm-hmm. Because I think by the end of this section, staying at Hunsford Parsonage, she has accepted that Charlotte has made a... A perfectly legitimate, yeah, yes. legitimate decision. And well, she has per- accepted no, that Charlotte can an, be content. Not perhaps
1: a legitimate one, because she does say to Colonel Fitzwilliam about
0: how it wasn't her wisest decision. That's actually to Darcy, and she says, Mr Collins's friends may well rejoice in his having met with one of the very few sensible women who would have accepted him or have made him happy if they had. My friend has an excellent understanding, though I am not certain that I consider her marrying Mr Collins as the wisest thing she ever did. She seems perfectly happy, however, and in a prudential light, it is certainly a very good match for her. Yes, so she's coming round to it. So yes, then there's lady catherine herself another larger than life character like than mr collins although i do find lady catherine funny in a way i don't find mr collins funny i'm not quite sure why i think it's just because she doesn't have the same subservience she is being funny from a great height yes
1: yeah well what you really find is you can't bear the uriah heapish aspect of Mr Collins you you find that embarrassing and nasty yeah whereas with Lady Catherine you think poor silly thing she doesn't know what people are thinking about her which I mean is basically the case and that's what Elizabeth is thinking oh my goodness you know who does she think she is does she not realize what a fool she's making of herself
0: Mm. I do like the discussion between Elizabeth and Colonel Fitzwilliam where he talks about how a younger son, you know, must be inured to self denial and dependence. <laughs> yeah. And Elizabeth points out to him that as the younger son of an earl, he can't actually have known much to want in his life. He may well end up having to marry Mr. Burr. <laughs> <laughs> well, only because he needs to be kept in the. In In a style to which he's become accustomed.
1: Yes, but I mean, he might feel that and the pressure could be there since she's obviously never going to marry Darcy. But she could be sort of being set aside
0: anyway for Colonel Fitzwilliam. (laughs) It's honestly hard to get any picture at all of Mr Berg because she doesn't say anything. But then with Lady Catherine, she probably can't get a word in edgewise. Yes. So you see her as this little weak sickly thing But who knows what she's actually like behind the scenes when her mother's not there? And what she's thinking. Yeah, what she's thinking. She could be a voracious reader. Yes. If she can't go out much, there's a good chance she's a voracious reader since she's been too ill ever to learn to play the piano. Yes, that's right, yes. Yeah, she could be a horrible person. We just don't know. We get not given enough information, I think, to form any picture yes. of what she's like. But she does go out for all those drives with her governess. I think she's a companion who was formerly a governess. She's the formerly the governess she, who stayed She's got to be in her mid-twenties. She's got to be nearly of an age with Darcy. Oh, yes. So she certainly doesn't need a governess anymore. No, no, but the governess has stayed there yeah. to sort of to run round after her as a companion, yes. So, yeah, possibly she does still have some long-term chronic illness, who knows? Yes.
1: Oh, well, she could well be a secret diary keeper.
0: But, you know, she could be a secret novelist.
1: She could be Yes, <laughs> she could be anything. No, she couldn't be, but I'm just sort of thinking of accomplishments. She couldn't be a secret painter. No. If she did anything that... That produced something, we'd hear about it because it would be Lady Catherine. Yeah. Look at her wonderful fancy work. And she obviously doesn't, mm. and she doesn't paint. Mm. She could well be a reader, though. Mm. And she could be bringing herself in lots of languages. Mm. I mean, that's another thing. She could definitely be teaching herself languages or she could even be doing the kind of studying that Mary does, mm.
0: reading these moralists mm. and the essays Yes, but so, not saying anything. She's become silent because her mother talks so much. Yes. I was going to talk about this later, but I might as well bring it up now. In the retelling Mr Darcy's Diary by Amanda Grange continues on beyond the end of the book and it turns out Anderberg and Colonel Fitzwilliam have actually been in love with each other all along and Anderberg is a much more active person and interesting person to talk to when she's not being overshadowed by her mother but of course this chapter finishes with Darcy's proposal but I think we can probably talk about that a little bit later because we're going to be talking about Darcy as a character and the proposal is really a key part of that. So what was your favourite sentence in these chapters? Oh,
1: well, the one I chose is probably because I've remembered it longest. Elizabeth soon perceived that though this great lady was not in commission of the peace of the country, she was a most active magistrate in her own parish, the minutest concerns of which were carried to her by Mr Collins. And whenever any of the cottages, and this is the bit I love particularly, were disposed to be quarrelsome, discontented or too poor, she sallied forth into the village to settle their differences, silence their complaints, and scold them into harmony and plenty. I've always, I've always loved that yes. a bit about it is she doesn't often go into something almost metaphorical is a bit strong for that, but where she makes these sort of fun comparisons, mm. she doesn't usually do that. she has these wonderful balanced sentences and they're very sharp, but not making this little little leap into a sort of world of metaphor or no. or, or simile or mm. something like yeah. that.
0: Though also I love that phrase, if they were disposed to be too poor. Yes. <laughs> what are they supposed to do about being too poor? Obviously they can't, but in Lady Catherine's eyes, presumably they're too poor because they're not managing their money properly and she, who knows everything about money management because <laughs> yes. she's obviously had to do so much of it herself, <laughs> um, <laughs> she can tell them what to do. Yes, yes. Well, unsurprisingly, my favourite is also connected with Lady Catherine. Yes. But this is actually a line that she says herself. It's actually two sentences. I might even extend it to three because it's, it fits together so well. There are few people in England, I suppose, who have more true enjoyment of music than myself or a better natural taste. If I had ever learned, I should have been a great proficient. And so would Anne, if her health had allowed her to apply. I am confident that she would have performed delightfully. <laughs> Claiming abilities in something she doesn't even do. It's yes, just... but I would have. <laughs> yes, had I done it, I would have been wonderful. Yes. That just, I think, sums up her character. Yes, yes, tea. yes. So the character we want to talk about this week is Darcy. I've been rereading the book... So What a Mixture, which is by a Canadian woman who works as a speech therapist with a lot of people on the autistic spectrum. And she has tried to read a lot of the characters in Pride and Prejudice as autistic spectrum, which I'm not going to actually make any sort of call on that because A, I don't know enough about autism. And B, I don't always agree with what she says. I feel sometimes she's drawn too much on inadequate evidence but I do think when she's talking about Darcy as being potentially on the autistic spectrum whether or not you agree with that position she does pick up some very very interesting points about him being socially awkward which it's I think easy to overlook because it's worth noting that later on when we meet Georgiana Darcy who's been described as proud Elizabeth immediately recognizes she's not proud she's shy and you could actually say that some of that also applies to Darcy. The word shy is never actually used in connection with Darcy. I don't know why. Maybe because you just don't describe men, particularly rich young men, as shy. But you do, if you look closely, get this picture of him being a lot less comfortable in bigger social situations and a lot more comfortable in... In smaller groups or places he's familiar with. Well, see, that's that's the sort of the aspect of him that made me feel
1: that these normal social situations, like a men's club or the hunting field or out shooting, are not the places where he would strike up that sort of comfortable friendship with Bingley. Mm. That somehow they must have been in some fairly intimate relationship, and it must have been a long way back. Mm. And when it gave Darcy the chance to sort of express what was really in him, which is his pride and and that he thinks he knows a lot. So I definitely
0: agree with that. Mm. Because some of the things she picks up on are at the um, assembly ball, he's talked about how he detests dancing unless it's with people he knows. And in such assembly as this, it would be insupportable. And he's really, he is very abrupt. And frankly, he is rude. But then also, and I think this is... um, this is very telling. In the discussion Elizabeth and Colonel Fitzwilliam have about Darcy, when he's standing right there, and Elizabeth says... that, that how awful he well, was Elizabeth that. says how he didn't dance with anyone, and he says, I'm ill-qualified to recommend myself to strangers. And then he also says, I certainly have not the talent which some people possess of conversing easily with those I have never seen before. I cannot catch their tone of conversation or appear interested in their concerns, as I often see done. Um, Again, look at Wickham. (laughs) Well, yes, exactly. That is totally what Wickham does. He adapts himself to circumstances and gives you what you want. He he picks up very quickly what people are thinking. Yes. Whereas Darcy doesn't. So as you go through the book, you actually see him progressively in more and more situations he's comfortable with. So the Meriton Assembly is... The worst situation for him, which I think is why we see the worst side of his personality possible, then you see him with the Bingley's in a much smaller group where he's a lot more relaxed, he's engaging in conversation, he's still quite stiff, he's not as relaxed as Bingley is. I mean, that's probably part of the attraction, that
1: Bingley opens the world to him. He can boss Bingley, but Bingley opens the
0: world to him a bit more. Well, I don't think he wanted to go to the Meriton Assembly with oh, Bingley. I know that. He absolutely did not want to be there. So, not only is he being rude about everyone else, he's also being pretty rude to Bingley because he's pretty much saying, You brought me here and I don't want to be here, which is mm. not nice. But he's pretty rude to Miss Bingley, yeah. even. That, yes, he <laughs> is. <laughs> he's there. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, then as it goes on, you see him with Lady Catherine, which is uncomfortable in a different sort of way because he does actually, at one point, look ashamed at his aunt's ill breeding. Yes. Yeah. And then, of course, then you see him at Pemberley when not only has he gone through an emotional journey before you get there, but also you are seeing him there in his most comfortable circumstances. He is at home. He knows everything. He's in charge. Everything is the way he wants it. He's got his sister there who he loves, who
1: he looks after. But also he's in a place where he's had the perfect model. Yes. This is, he's had his father there. This is the way we behave. Mm. This is the way the squire of Pemberley behaves. Yes.
0: Which is why all those things, Wickham says he does all these things out of pride. Well, okay, sure, but that doesn't make them not good things. They're excellent things, and that's why the housekeeper speaks so highly of him at Pemberley. Yes. Oh, and one other thing I forgot. I can't remember where I came across it, but if you look at the timetable, when they arrive at Netherfield... That's probably very soon after the Wickham and Georgiana thing because that happened in summer and they arrive in Netherfield and it's just autumn. So he's probably, he's had the Wickham thing, he's taken Georgiana back to London. She's probably been very distressed and he's been upset trying to manage it because he hates seeing his sister unhappy. And then he's barely got her settled in London when suddenly Bingley wants him to come off and help him choose this estate. Yes. So again, not perhaps in the best situation at the world, which in no way excuses his behaviour because that behaviour at the Meriton Assembly is unacceptable by any standards. But then the other thing I think while he's staying with Lady Catherine is you get this sense that he's in a highly emotional state through all of that because unlike previously, where we were all the time seeing in his head as i've said last time we're not seeing inside his head anymore it's all external so we're not feeling his emotional turmoil but we're getting all these hints of it that he probably didn't know before making his annual visit to Lady Catherine that Elizabeth was going to be there. No. He might have, but it's unlikely. So he thought... Well, I mean,
1: it's most unlikely that she would
0: ever have written to him and say, oh, we're going to have all these visitors down at the Parsonage. Yes. (laughs) So he thought he'd moved away. He'd put Elizabeth behind him. He could move on. And then he arrives and and in there. And he's back in his family comfort zone. Yeah. Lady Catherine, maybe not terribly comfortable no but... no
1: no but he's used to it yeah he knows what you've got to expect and he's got his
0: cousin there yeah. to chat to yes and Colonel Fitzwilliam is probably a similar relationship as with Bingley he's a relaxed person whereas Darcy is a bit more uptight he's good in company Darcy is not good in company again they've had that long connection since they became Georgiana's joint guardians mm. after his father died mm. yes As I said, I'm not going to enter into any discussion about whether or not he's on the autistic spectrum, but I do think a lot of the points she picks up to support her argument in and of themselves are really interesting and valid points about Darcy's personality. about Darcy. About explaining why he is the way he is and also probably why he can undergo change. Because, of course, not only are we not in his head for this scene, but in the period between now and Pemberley when he undergoes this... All this, 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 self journey, examin- this self-examination.
1: self-examination yeah. Yeah.
0: And improving himself. We don't see any of that. When you
1: first read the proposal, you think, this is ridiculous. What that almost did for me was make me feel that Darcy is a lot younger. Because you think, how could he be so silly? And, you know, I've been thinking of Darcy as sort of 26, 27 but that makes me wonder where there he is, he's sort of so self-important, I, I'm going to say this, I mustn't conceal anything, I must reveal all my viewers, Which is the sort of something that say a 22,
0: 23
1: year old man
0: might think. I think it does actually say in the book somewhere that he's 27, 28, something like that. Yes. I can't yeah. remember where but I think it does.
1: He's sort of opening his heart to her Mm. in his own mind. It's dishonest to tell her, I think she's beautiful, I love her family, she'll be an ornament to Pemberley, (laughs) and all her relations will. But that's why I think he comes to me across as quite young, as this man who's trying to come to terms, but he's trying to be honest. Mm. So he's maybe not so much young as a bit emotionally stunted? Well, no, just that he's... Now he's started talking about himself and he's quite introspective. He's wanting to tell her. Now he's started talking, he wants to tell the lot Mm. and not realising at all how incredibly rude it is (laughs) to say, you know, I didn't want
0: to love... I mean, in some ways that's flattering, but (laughs) (laughs) but not to Elizabeth. We said before when she received Mr Collins' proposal she was very civil and polite and she starts out the same way here. In fact, it says that in spite of her deeply rooted dislike she could not be insensible to the compliment of such a man's affection and though her intentions did not vary for an instant she was at first sorry for the pain he was to receive till, roused to resentment by his subsequent language lost all compassion in anger.
1: In a sense, what she's saying is While he was telling Elizabeth how wonderful she was, Elizabeth sort of felt sorry she was going to say no to him. (laughs) And once he starts talking about her relations, she gets enraged. Yes. But the thing that gets me is that sense in all that of him feeling, I've got to be honest, but that that he's got that view. And
0: I'm telling her everything I feel. Mm. Without actually showing any empathy to what it will be like for her to receive that. Yes, yes, yes. I read at least one online comment about the autistic spectrum book saying that one of the things against Darcy potentially being on the spectrum is that he can change. Yes. Though I'm I'm not totally convinced he is ever going to be comfortable in a place like the Meriton Assembly. No. I think he would probably much rather do a Mr. Bennet and just stay home. But, but, but I, well, I think, though, the point is
1: what he's going to do is learn to conceal what he's feeling. Yeah, conceal the And not make awful put-downs the way he did to <laughs> poor Sir William saying yeah. every savage can dance. Yes. Which is funny, but not very nice, yeah. given, given the
0: relationship of yeah. them. Although that's another thing. I think Darcy does have the very beginnings of a sense of humour. Oh, I think um, he does. I mean, that is, as you said, it's not very nice, but it is kind of, it, oh, it's it's, funny. it's a joke. It's just a poorly timed joke. Yes. But then much, much later in the book, when Elizabeth is asking him why he came back with Bingley and he said, you know, my avowed reason or the one I avowed, vowed to myself was to see if Bingley and Jane were still in love with each other. Yes. I do not know how soon other ideas came, but I believe it to have been within half an hour of my seeing you again. <laughs> which again beginnings of a sense of humor which i think is one of the things he appreciates about elizabeth and the impression you get in that bit at the end where it talks about how georgiana is at first alarmed at the lively sportive way elizabeth yes. talks to darcy is that she will actually bring out that side of him he will be more relaxed be more able to make jokes to make her laugh as well as her make him laugh yes
1: yes The beginnings of it are there in the way he deals with Miss Bingley. He is being funny. He sees her as comic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, another thing I think is um, really crucial a key sentence in that exchange with Elizabeth and Colonel Fitzwilliam is when he says of Elizabeth, We neither of us perform in public. Now, I think that is true of him. The more public, the more shut down he is. He doesn't put his personality out. Se- I suppose he does perform in that he's performing a role of standoff should, and proud. And he has said earlier, pride, when well regulated, is appropriate. Yes. So he sees himself as performing this role of a well-bred, proud man who doesn't want to mingle with with this fairly broad gentry society. Yeah. Well. But I think what he's meaning when he says we don't perform in public is we don't put our uh, innermost personality out in public, which is very true of him and so not true of Elizabeth. Oh, Because the Elizabeth you see at the Meriton Assembly is the same Elizabeth you see. talking in, to Mrs. Gardner. Talking to Mrs. Gardner. Maybe not quite the Elizabeth you see when she's talking to Jane, but in general, the personality Elizabeth presents in public is the personality she presents in private. Yes.
1: Now, I think it's even there with Jane, you know, where she says that about, but what about the other interested parties? Yes, how, are we going to, <laughs> how are we going
0: to defend mm, them? Yeah. I think one of the reasons Darcy is often held up as the quintessential Austen hero is because of this, I'm sure I got this idea from talking of Jane Austen, the sense of I- exclusivity. He opens up to so few people and Elizabeth is the only one he is completely, completely relaxed with. And
1: and wants to be honest with getting back to this thing I feel is the sort of the strange motivation Mm. of that proposal.
0: Yeah. But, of course, it does also mean, and it's said in the book, in public he's continually giving offence. Now, under Elizabeth's influence, that will probably improve just as under Charlotte's influence, Mr Collins will improve in public. (laughs) They're both actually dealing with someone who has some problems. With with self-presentation, Yes, yes. (laughs) There's room for improvement there. But whereas a lot of the other Austen heroes are much nicer people. Like Knightley is a much nicer person. Wentworth, in spite of some questionable oh, no. stuff in dinner oh, no. with he's a nice person. And poor old Edmund. I mean, he's so well-meaning, yeah. poor Edmund. So I think every single other Jane Austen hero is a nice person in the way that Darcy isn't. Yes. And I think Darcy is never going to be Wentworth or Knightley or anyone like that, but he is still going to be an estimable person. Yes. But I do agree with the author of The Bitch in the Bonnet that some people who are holding him up as this great romantic hero are perhaps not actually recognising the very real flaws in him, which will never be completely overcome, I don't think. I think it's because they're typical heroes. Rochester
1: and Heathcliff. I mean, you know, Heathcliff is a typical hero for oh, you. Heathcliff is a not... hero. Heathcliff is a monster. I know, no, but the point is, people like that Jilly Cooper one saying yeah. he was like Darcy and Heathcliff and yeah. Rochester all in together. Mm. You're not going to find anything of Heathcliff in Edmund.
0: No. <laughs> or even in Edward. Mm. Though I think the Jilly Cooper quote is actually saying the character in the book is like a mixture of Rochester and Darcy, but with a wild gypsy passion like Heathcliff as well. Oh, right, does <laughs> it? Yes. Yeah. But still,
1: it's people who are looking for heroes Yeah. who really like that idea of
0: the wild man tamed. Yeah. I think Darcy's not the wild man tamed, but he is... Elizabeth changes him. As I said, it's the the exclusiveness. Yes. <laughs>
1: Right, well now it's the point where I do my little bit about the historical background and what I'm going to do this time is look at the sort of background to Mr Collins and this whole idea of clergyman and the things Jane Austen assumes you know when mm-hmm. she wrote these books. Yep. And I think the very first thing to stress is that the terms rector and vicar are not interchangeable and almost all the clergy, I think all the ones I can think of in Jane Austen, including her father and her brothers, were rectors of country parishes Vicars mm-hmm. are appointed in all sorts of ways. But if they're a rector of a country parish and they mostly lived in the rectories that went with the job, mm-hmm. a rector once appointed had that position for life and he was entitled to the income that went with that particular rectorship or rectory or whatever it was. And that was why he was referred to as the incumbent of a living. He took over the living, which is this income that comes to a rector. It comes to him for life Mm -hmm. once he becomes an incumbent. But he then can't leave it to someone else when he dies. When he dies, it goes back to the patron to be given to someone else. A rector can hold two or three livings and he can then hand one of them over to his son and
0: give him the income, but the son is not the rector so if the rector then dies then the living the son is in the son doesn't automatically get it it goes there's a fair chance it will then be given to the son yeah but it's not guaranteed yes anyway
1: he was he was the incumbent and the income he got was composed of the tithes which I don't understand properly but they were an ancient right to a tenth part of the produce of the parish and we found that That is sorted out with Lady Catherine by Mr Collins in the one mention. But most of their money comes from the profits from an endowment. And this is where it's a living worth £200 or £3,000. And that comes from some sort of endowment in the past where somebody, as a gift while they're living or as a bequest, leaves to the parish property. So this would just be a person who lives in the parish? It could be anyone. Uh-huh. I mean, some of them had been left, say, to, to Oxford Colleges, but the Oxford Colleges then appointed one of their tutors or members to the parish if, when he wanted to get married, say. But most of the time it seems to have been, even if it was money left, it seems to have been spent on farming land within the parish, and I'm not sure if this is what was called Glebe, or if Glebe was more, I was more restricted. And the rector could get his income from that. He could either rent it out to tenants, or if he wanted to, he could take one farm under his own control. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why Charlotte, of course, is worrying about her poultry and her cows and all (laughs) that sort of thing, because obviously Mr Collins is got a farm though how much they did I mean the Austens themselves had a bailiff called John Bond who did all the sort of practical farming for them Mm -hmm. but they had their own farm and so thinking of a living you know how much it's worth you're Mm -hmm. always told how much it's worth you know when Edward Ferris is offered one in Sense and Sensibility he's told it's worth so much but with effort you could make it bring in more yeah. because basically he's got this property he's managing. The livings were presented to the holder by the patron who in most of Jane Austen's cases was a major landowner in the district where the parish lay. Though this power could be held again, as I was saying, by if the endowment had been left to a college. The college then appointed the next rector. And the patrons could present their livings to anyone they fancied. Whenever the incumbent died, then it comes up. And in this one, you'll see Lady Catherine gave it to Mr Collins, who did nothing more than flatter her at the right place just when she had a living to present. And what Mr Darcy Senior promised to Wickham, he says, when this living falls vacant, I want it presented to him, and he even mentioned it. A great many land landholders, ho- however, saw the livings as a provision for their younger sons. Mm-hmm. And it mightn't be, you know, they, he might have a little 200 pounds a year living here and another 500 pound one there and get them together and the inheritor might live in the rectory or one or he might continue living at home. And he'd hire curates at about £100 a year, if he was feeling generous, to turn up at these other places and hold sermons, possibly live in the rectory for that place and perform more duties. But he'd take the lion's share of the income and hire curates. And theoretically, he was in charge of it all and he was supervising the curates and seeing they did the right thing. But quite often he was just a young man who had been g- given all this and he just wanted to go on being doing his hunting and his shooting and <laughs> his going into town for the season. And like Mr Tilney, he turns up at Bath for having a nice time mm. and yet he's supposed to be a reasonably good
0: rector of his... But, Although um, you do get in Mansfield Park that Jane Austen doesn't seem to quite approve of this because Henry Crawford thinks that when when Edmund takes orders he will continue living at Mansfield Park and Edmund says absolutely not. My father would never never agree to that. So he will certainly live in the parish. But it's also interesting that even though that is sort of such a... Um, uh, such a line in the sand when there's another living comes up there's no issue at all with Edmund having both of them yes but that's the way it
1: works by the time you get to Trollope he's got in Barchester Towers is this family who've always lived in Italy and just got the money from their from their livings lived on that and paid some curate a couple of hundred a year Mm. to do all the work for them Some of the young men who did that were often referred to as squarsons, they meant a squire and a parson, (laughs) who did the same same sort of things. And of course, if these livings were intended for a son, if a son was being brought up to the church, uh, when the incumbent died, they'd often get somebody else in, they'd present the living to him, but he promised he'd go when the son was old enough. Mm -hmm. That's what they should have done in Mansfield Park, when Aunt Norris's husband died, but they were broke, and so they had to do something else. And what they did was they sold the presentation of the living, which was something you could do. There were clergymen who had a bit of money to spend or their parents had some money they wanted to invest, and so they'd go around and buy these livings. It was obviously a going price because in Sense and Sensibility, the yes. Dashwood brother says, now how
0: ridiculous of him not that he could have sold it. Yes. <laughs> so if that living is sold does that then mean it's sold to the person who still it, it, has the life interest in yes, it? Yes, because it, it's it, not sold, sold completely forever because oh in no. Mansfield Park...
1: No, no, that's exactly it, that it's sold for the lifetime of the incumbent mm-hmm. and so it could be a really good buy for him if he lives to be 80. It could be a really bad buy if he lives to be 27, <laughs> you know, and it, it
0: goes back to the patron. That's, and again, that purchase might be by him himself if he has some money or it could also be if his um if his family has money but they don't have a living under their own right, they would buy or it. Or they've for him. only got a poor one and they want to
1: sort of up his income a bit. Yeah. And so you know, that could just be done. And and that was the way it went. But during Jane Austen's life it becomes more and more under attack, which is what's interesting about Mansfield Park. Mm-hmm. But that they don't think it's wrong to have more than one living. Mm. Anyway, that's basically, those were the terms I wanted to talk about, how you present, the patron presents the living to someone who then becomes the incumbent for his lifetime, but the moment he dies... It goes back to the patron who comes up with someone else. Mm. And you no, know, and a lot of them were probably very conscientious. Mm. Even the ones they sold to, That they, they wouldn't necessarily sell it to old anyone. Mm.
0: They, they'd sell it to somebody that they thought would do a good job. Two other comments about the Collinses. One, it does say in there the fact that Elizabeth wonders why they are so very attentive to Lady Catherine and then realises that, of course, Lady Catherine must have several other livings.
1: Yes, and evidently she'd be prepared to give them to Mr Collins and let him appoint a curate
0: Yeah, that he supervised. Yeah. Well, at least they want to make sure she does give them to Mr Collins yes. by staying attentive and making sure she continues to approve of him. Yes. But the other thing, of course, is when Mr Bennett ultimately dies and Mr Collins inherits Longbourn, presumably at that point he would stop being a clergyman and... He... No, he wouldn't stop
1: being a clergyman. He'd continue to be a clergyman. He'd continue to get all the money that he right. was due to him. And so he'd just be a clergyman living at Longbourn. Uh-huh. Who was, and he would have put curates or somebody else into Hunsford. Uh-huh. Or he might, Lady Catherine might put pressure on him to retire. But it's his until he dies or it, retires. It's only his until he dies. Anyway, that's what I wanted to say about living. Did, did that make sense? Yes, it did. Because it's very, very hard to find anyone who writes it properly. I picked up, picked it up, but haven't been able to find anything that spells it out properly. Yes. So it's largely been gleaning it from within the books. Well, from reading the books and reading biographies and reading Trollope and reading Charlotte Young and mm-hmm. you know people like that, you get a pretty clear picture. <laughs>
0: interesting things with the pop culture versions of Pride and Prejudice is how Darcy is presented in each of them. Oh yes, yes. (laughs) Because of course, while the book has all this social commentary and razor-sharp analysis of people and their weaknesses and their foibles and their follies, when it turns into a pop culture version, and I'm thinking particularly of the film and TV adaptations here, typically a lot of that is lost and it is a romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. I was looking in my book Laurence Olivier wrote called On Acting, where he's talked about a lot of the roles he played. He didn't say much about playing Darcy, but what he did say is, I accepted because Vivian, as in Vivian Lee, who was his wife at the time, I accepted because Vivian was to be my co-star and George Cukor the director, but no, Greer Garson became Elizabeth Bennet and Robert Z. Leonard the director, and I was very unhappy with the picture. It was difficult to make Darcy into anything more than an unattractive looking prig. (laughs) And darling Greer seemed to me all wrong as Elizabeth. To me, Jane Austen had made Elizabeth different from her affected idiotic sisters. She was the only down-to-earth one, but Greer played her as the most affected and silly of the lot. I also thought the best points in the book were missed, although apparently no one else did. I'm still signing autographs over Darcy's large left lapel. MGM (laughs) always got their costumes right. There's actually a couple of things to unpack in that, not related to Darcy, but I just thought it's such a lovely snippet. First of all, I agree that Greer Garson was quite affected as Elizabeth. I don't agree she was silly. Yes. I don't think she was particularly well cast, but I thought she was was an enjoyable person to spend a movie with. I thought it's so interesting that he says MGM always got their costumes right because, of course, to modernise those costumes seem just so wrong and so silly because they're completely out of period. Yes. But it, we've all got our view now of Regency Yes.
1: Costume, yes.
0: particularly for all the people who've been reading George Etihad for years and yes. years. <laughs> um, so again, I think that's just an interesting reminder that while we are critical of those costumes now, back in the day, the MGM made the right decision. That was what people wanted. When I first saw the Olivier film, I did... Find the proposal scene, it made me believe in a way I hadn't when I read the book that opening sentence of the proposal. He did deliver it reasonably well, but I agree, he wasn't, he was very good looking, but he didn't really, it wasn't Olivia's greatest performance. No. His Heathcliff was much better, even though his Heathcliff had very little to do with Emily Bronte's Heathcliff. Yes, it
1: was a different novel.
0: Yes, (laughs) Yes, it was
1: a different story.
0: (laughs) Um, Yeah. Whereas I think it's interesting looking at 1980, David Rintel's performance leading into 1995, Colin Firth's performance leading into 2005 with Matthew McFadgen's performance. This idea of the socially awkward Darcy does actually seem to be evolving through those. So David Rintel is, he's very stiff. He's also quite tall, so particularly in the Netherfield scenes, actually, he's almost like he's stalking around the room. (laughs) But he seems very buttoned up, so you don't get a sense of social awkwardness, or I don't, you just get a sense of someone who isn't at all relaxed and isn't a relaxed person, which is why I thought it was interesting that in that version, when he arrives for the proposal scene, you see him walking up to the cottage and he's got a dog with him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and maybe that's meant to make him a bit more relatable because he walks up with the dog and then he tells the dog to stay outside and you have a close-up shot of the dog's face before he walks, in, <laughs> walks into the cottage. Joe was kind of nice, but he, he's very stiff in the proposal scene. They do still, it, be, it does become a bit of a shouting match at the end, but it's actually a very unemotional proposal. You don't get any real sense of turmoil or of the whole thing just bursting out of him. It's all very, very controlled. In 1995, on the other hand, I think Colin Firth really did latch onto this idea of Darcy finding it difficult in social situations, him being not just stiff, him actually being uncomfortable in social situations. He actually says that in an interview in my book on the making of. So what you see there is that in the proposal scene he arrives and he walks around and he opens his mouth and he closes his mouth and he walks around a bit more he's obviously intensely uncomfortable although you've also earlier you've seen scenes with him being a little bit more relaxed and smiling at Elizabeth so again I think he is picking up on what I was talking about the emotional turmoil Darcy is in at this stage and what one of the reasons the proposal perhaps comes out so terribly terribly badly With the 2005 version, I've talked in previous episodes about how they give these little extra insights into some of those minor characters to engage your sympathy with them that I think work really well for these minor characters. But what they've done with Darcy is, I think, they again, they've built on this socially awkward side of things, but this Darcy, whereas Colin Firth in the Meriton Assembly, he just doesn't want to be there. He's not happy, he's not comfortable, he (laughs) wants to be home, he doesn't want to be there. Whereas... Matthew McFadgen in these earlier public scenes, what you see a bit more is he's not comfortable and he wishes he was. You get Oh lovely. There's a little there's a shot early on of his sort of his hand opening and closing in a fist and opening again, and in fact, Elizabeth describes him as miserable. Colin Firth dancing, on the other hand, looked more annoyed than anything else. A key difference between Colin Firth and Matthew McFadgen in the scene with Colonel Fitzwilliam is when they're talking about not being comfortable in company, not being able to present themselves well to other people, Colin Firth is just says it. That's it. That's why I am. I'm not comfortable with it. That's yes. me. Matthew McFadden is basically the subtext. seemed to be I'm not comfortable. Feel sorry for me about this. Yes. I wish I was. And I like Matthew McFadden's Darcy, but it is not Jane Austen's Darcy. Yes. Not at all. If this was a Romantic comedy that was not Pride and Prejudice, was something else, I would love it. I would love his character. I think he's a wonderful romantic hero, but he is a completely different character from a completely different book. He's arguably less interesting than Darcy. You get this sense that he possibly has less personal growth because he's already unhappy with the fact that he doesn't know how to connect and he wants to connect and he can't connect. Whereas Colin Firth's Darcy doesn't have that sense at all, neither do any of the others, and I think neither does the Darcy of the book. You mean the Darcy of the book isn't wanting to connect? I don't think so. I think the Darcy of the book is not comfortable in social situations and his way of dealing with that is trying not to be in social situations. Yeah, well, basically, perhaps um, what that Darcy
1: does too is he does things that are his duty as, yeah. as Mr. Darcy yes. of Pemberley. Yeah. But when he isn't having to be Mr. Darcy of Pemberley, why should I bother? Yes. yeah. That much. he's been brought up and he's probably been told, you've got to be nice to them, you're not open enough with them. Mm. And so when he's with other people, he can relax and say, I don't have to be Mr. Yeah. Darcy of Pemberley.
0: Mm. In the 2005 version, there are times and... This first proposal between Darcy and Elizabeth is one of them. The other is, in fact, the second proposal at the end of the film, where I feel that they take a sudden sudden left turn and cease being Jane Austen and enter Bronte territory. Yes. Because instead of the proposal being in the confined room at Hunsford Parsonage, in this one, she's outside in the rain. She goes into this little gazebo. She's dripping wet. Darcy arrives. He's dripping wet too. And the whole thing is just notched up to 11. It's so over the top. Well, and this is
1: this is this letting the weather in there, which is so, so much a Bronte thing. Yes. The, 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 the pathetic fallacy yes. is there all the way, whereas Jane Austen, the weather
0: really does. Oh, except, I suppose, with Elizabeth arriving at... But that's not the weather reflecting emotion. That's just the weather being a thing. <laughs> yes. So a couple of other things I wanted to comment on with these adaptations is... The 1980 Lady Catherine, they've built on her character. Instead of giving her lots of dialogue from the book, which they do, they also have they have her talking incessantly. There are two times when she asks Darcy a question and he opens his mouth, but before he can answer it, she's <laughs> continuing on. She has all this household management information for Mrs Collins. You know, you must buy this sort of beef, and if you've got red ant, you must use these herbs, and um... oh, somebody must have had a management book when yes. they were writing the <laughs> well, script. It was written by Fair and I found I enjoyed it almost more than anything else in that particular adaptation, because I do find the 1980 adaptation, it's quite stiff, but I felt Lady Catherine worked brilliantly. It was a lovely performance by the actress. It was so funny. Who was the actress? Someone I know? I looked her up because she was not someone I was familiar with. It was Judy Parfitt. She's, she had, I looked up, she had I mean,
1: a, She's probably, she had a long one yeah.
0: Which includes, I'm sure, Lady Bracknell <laughs> No, she, she may have been Lady Bracknell on stage She hadn't uh, on screen I gather she's had an ongoing part in Call the Midwife She was delightful. She was so funny. You also had a scene later on of Charlotte manually polishing the legs of a chair Elizabeth asking, why are you doing it? And Charlotte saying, because Lady Catherine told me I shouldn't leave it to the servants. I just found it absolutely so funny and so delightful. But that was obviously a very good script writer. Yes. And then
1: they got in a suitable actress. Yes.
0: Something about the 1995 version with Colin Firth is... I can't remember if I said it before, but when I watched this, I was struck with just how much of the original dialogue from the book is retained. Really? More, more, I believe, than any other version. So I feel it really does bring the book to life. I think that's one of the reasons, aside from the performances, that it is, for me, and I know everyone has their own favourite version of Pride and Prejudice, but for me, it's the the adaptation that I feel is most true to the book, insofar yes. as any adaptation is true, because of course they all bring their own things. Yes. It had so much of Jane Austen's dialogue, occasionally but not heavy-handedly bringing in some authorial comment into dialogue, but the actual dialogue from the book, delivered particularly well by the cast members, I think really, really was one of the great strengths of that production. Though I did notice one line that he added that I did like, it's in the Elizabeth Colonel Fitzwilliam Darcy scene, and Elizabeth says to Colonel Fitzwilliam, "'I always believe in first impressions, and his good opinion once lost is gone forever.'" Which is not a line from the book, yeah. but I thought it was quite clever bringing in the First Impressions title from the yes. original. Yes, yes. Another interesting thing about that adaptation is when Elizabeth first arrives at Hunsford Parsonage, and she and Charlotte are talking about how Charlotte has arranged things... So, that, you know, she encourages Mr. Collins to work in the garden because it's good for him and she encourages him to go and visit Lady Catherine. And the subtext is so obvious that, uh, you know, she's basically arranged things so she has as little as possible to do with Mr. Collins. But at no point, once Charlotte is married to Mr. Collins, Elizabeth never criticises him to Charlotte and Charlotte never criticises him to Elizabeth, which yes. is also there in the book but I think became particularly apparent in this conversation and I think is again very very true to Jane Austen that yes. you don't criticize once it's happened yes yeah. yes yeah,
1: yeah. they and each know what the
0: other thinks yes and they, that's they knew it. what they meant they knew yes. what they were saying but it was subtext uh, and one other thing I have to say this time about the 2005 version the film with Matthew McFadgen and Keira Knightley Lady Catherine in this is played by Judy Dench who of course is lovely Yes, But, yeah, I always love Judy Dench. She gives a lovely performance. She is very Lady Catherine, but in some ways I kind of prefer, of them all, I almost think my favourite is the one from the 1980 version with all the extra dialogue about household management and the very clearly not letting anyone else get a word in edgewise. Yes. (laughs) Just touching briefly on some of the modernisations. Yes. We talked about Darcy being uncomfortable in company in... Bride and Prejudice, the Bollywood version, Darcy is an American who initially is brought over to India with his friend Balrash to attend an Indian wedding and he he is completely out of his element in the Indian society. So they kind of introduce that awkwardness in a different way. Darcy himself is not necessarily awkward in company but he's very awkward when he's taken out of his element like that. So it's a different approach to the same thing. Yes, And The last thing I wanted to say, which harks back to the very first thing I said when we were talking about this, is that that gap in time at the start of these chapters, where you skip through January, February and most of March and nothing happens. Yes. With the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, I was lucky enough to watch that when it was first on YouTube. So it actually took place 50 episodes, two episodes a week. With a break over Christmas. So it lasted an entire year. So, one of the things I found absolutely entrancing about that was watching the story unfold in real time, week by week, episode by episode, you got the sense of time passing because time actually was passing. But of course, to make that happen, having that sort of two month gap where nothing happens, (laughs) they had to deal with it. So, the way they dealt with it is. They've actually juggled the time scheme a fair bit. So instead of spending six days staying at Netherfield, they actually stay at Netherfield for four weeks. You get lots of episodes at Netherfield, yes. and then Wickham's sad story about Darcy happens after Charlotte has accepted Mister Collins's offer and gone off to become a business partner in his web company. Oh right. And <laughs> <laughs> then Elizabeth goes to visit Charlotte. There's no Lady Catherine de Bourgh, but there is Mister de who is a venture capitalist who's put money into the business and therefore is very important. She doesn't have a daughter, Anne, but she does have a, a dog called Anakins. <laughs> <laughs> and the proposal scene is the first time we actually see Darcy because up until now, it's all been Elizabeth pretending to be him in costume theatre. We've never met the real person. And in fact, I don't think the actor was even cast until just before this. But what happens is at the end of episode 59... Just after Elizabeth's had her big rant about him, he knocks on the door and asks if he can talk to her and we see his body but we don't see his face and then at the start of episode 60, he sits down and for the first time we actually see his face and that's the proposal scene. You've been listening to Reading Jane Austen with me, Harriet, and me, Ellen. In our next
1: episode, we'll be doing chapters 35 to 41 of Pride and Prejudice.
0: The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and the summarise in a sentence concept was adapted from E.L. Konigsberg's book Silent to the Bone. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to.
1: You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneausten.com.
0: You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.